2 Timothy I love, as, as you probably know, it was the last, most likely the last book that Paul wrote before he died, and it just seems like it's chock full of things that are really important, and, uh, and so it's, it's a great opportunity to be able to share it with you and, and study through it together. Paul starts out the second chapter, and um, after in the first chapter really talking about how important the gospel is and what a privilege it is to minister it to others and um, challenging Timothy with just the importance of that which had been committed to him. On the basis of all that, he says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I, I can't think of too many more important and practical verses in the Bible. Such a rare quality to have someone be strong in grace. Typically, we associate grace with weakness. Typically, we associate strength with law. But in reality, all we have is grace. If grace isn't true, if it really isn't free, if it isn't something that Jesus Christ paid for in total, um, if there's any shred of us that has to be good enough or to earn it, then we're sunk, all of us. And so Paul is just letting Timothy know if there's, if there's something that people need to see in you that you're majoring on, if when people look at your life they're going to be bowled over or impressed by anything, let it be the grace of God. Let that be what is unquestionably driving everything that you do. And what a great reminder it is to us to be strong in grace. In reality, the only kind of strength there is is grace strength. Every other strength apart from grace is just faking it. It's just playing a game. It's just smoke and mirrors. Real strength can only come from God's grace. True, lasting strength. And that's the message that we have. That's the reason why we live. And it wouldn't be a very bad thing if we just decided every, every day of our lives to ask God to make us strong in grace. I know there's an awful lot of things that we do that we wouldn't do if we were stronger in grace. And at the same time, there are a lot of things that probably we should do that we don't because we aren't strong enough in grace. Every time you get down on yourself, every time you tell yourself, I don't think I can make it, I don't think anyone loves me, I don't think life is worth living, you're demonstrating a profound need to understand a little bit more how strong grace is and to be strong in grace. If we are strong in grace, it will be demonstrated by our receiving his grace and therefore having a confidence in who we are before him. At the same time, it'll give us a humility where we don't have to defend ourselves because grace is our defense. And then it will allow us to be kind and loving to others and to show God's grace to others and to not be judgmental and difficult on others because 
when you've received grace, you, you have to show it. And there's nothing that's more refreshing than for someone to show you grace. And that's what Jesus did for us, and that's the message that we are to carry. And that is the part that if we leave it out of our message, then nothing else matters. Nothing else in the message has any power or any validity at all. We need to be careful because sometimes we can tell our story in a way that sounds like human merit or maturity or discipline or whatever has a lot to do with why we are the way we are. And yet the only way to really tell our story is to have it be the story of grace. And that's why we can look forward to the future with optimism too, because it is only grace. It's all grace. It's probably why some of the some of the most loved and powerful songs in the history of the church have been about grace. When someone's inspired by grace, it makes you want to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, how that song touches people who don't even understand where the grace is coming from. We all know, boy, do we need a breath of fresh air, grace in our lives. And so, but be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If you want to be strong in grace, you'll only find it in Jesus. That's the place to look. And if you find Jesus, you'll find grace in strength. If you're not strong in grace, you don't need to study grace. You need to study Jesus. You need to draw closer to him. And that's something that we all could use a dose of. But he says, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In the area of communicating grace, he says, you need to be strong in grace, but it's not just for you. You need to take that grace and communicate it to others in a way that they are able to communicate grace. This is a message that's too good to sit on. This is a message that must be shared. And that when it's shared, it inspires others to carry the message to still others. And so he says, hey, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus and take that life message of grace and share it with others in a way that they are able to communicate it clearly to even others. This should be spreading like wildfire. It's such an amazing message. And so find faithful people and teach them so that they can teach others. I hope you enjoy sharing God's grace with people. Sometimes we don't like to because one of the best ways to share God's grace is to share our failure. You know, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And the truth is, because we really don't believe in grace, we don't like being vulnerable and sharing our own weakness. But our own weakness is where God's strength is seen most powerfully. And to demonstrate that message, nothing gives it more credibility than for you to and for me to share with people how much we need grace. It allows us to connect with them and allows them to realize this isn't a message that you have to be good enough to share. This is something that's just about how, how good God is. And so just 
a powerful challenge to Timothy to, to live in the message of grace and to share the message of grace with others. And then he says, he begins to use some, some uh, images, some metaphors in order to talk about how to live life. Because the truth is, even walking in grace and living in grace and sharing grace with others, it's an expensive way to live. It's not always going to be easy. The easy way out is usually the way of lying, hiding, running, pretending. Um, no, it's, it's difficult to show grace because grace by its nature primes the pump. So it's not really grace until someone doesn't deserve it. A lot of times we, we think of grace as being, well, if somebody, if somebody shows me that they're really sorry, then I'll show them grace. And we want people to, to crawl in order to earn grace. Sorry, if you have to earn grace, it was never grace in the first place. But if somebody is going to communicate grace, it means you have to share grace with people who haven't as yet deserved it and who maybe um, will burn you. And you'll take chances on many of them and find yourself hurt or stabbed in the back at different times. Sometimes learning grace can be learned only when you think of someone who has done something horrible to you and realize that even in that horror and even in that pain that God's grace, as the Lord said to Paul in 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you despite your thorn in the flesh, despite your difficulty, despite your prayers not being answered the way you want them to be answered. That's the place where you will discover my grace. But living that way um, isn't just a dance through the flowers of life. It's, it's getting yourself ready for difficulties because that comes with the territory. And so he says, first of all, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of life in order that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. He says in some ways being a believer in grace is being someone who is in a war because most people out there don't understand grace. And if you're going to carry that grace, it's going to be costly at times. It's going to be painful. But he said like a soldier who when they sign up, they understand you know, that, that being a soldier isn't just shooting people. Um, it's having people shoot at you as well and understanding that it's difficult. And in the same way that when someone takes an oath to be a soldier, they understand there are going to be difficulties. This is going to be hard. It's going to hurt. There are risks involved. There are costs, a price to pay, and, and discipline that's necessary because you cannot afford to be distracted when your life is on the line. And certainly we see this, if you know anyone who is serving in active duty, most of them nowadays are seeing real action. It's not the same. It's, that's not to belittle people who serve and never see action. Thank God for that. But at the same time, talk to people who are over there and it's really happening to them and you realize how life and death 
critical it is that you do your job, that you pay attention, that you function. We have reminders of, you know, Marcus who goes to our church, who is, you, you probably see him wearing the halo, the screws in his head and everything. Um, Lord willing, he's going to be getting that out pretty soon. And he just put a video together that, that he's going to let us share with you um, of some of his experiences. And his best friend died when the bomb hit their vehicle over there and God spared his life. But you, you see that and it becomes very real, this image that, that Paul is presenting here. And he's just saying, when you become a soldier, you understand that. I heard someone come up to Marcus this last Sunday when he was at church, and they said, thank you so much for what you did. And he said, I was just doing my job. That's, what, that's a soldier's heart. I'm just doing my job. And Paul says, when life gets tough and when other people aren't showing grace to you, and when you're misunderstood and accused and treated horribly, as Paul knew something about that, and you're paying the price for grace, he said, like a soldier, make sure that you don't get yourself distracted and entangled in the affairs of life. This is a full-time job. You have to pay complete attention to it. Eternity is at stake. And when you are a soldier of Jesus Christ, your whole life is lived to please the one who enlisted you, to make him proud. Your, everything in your life needs to be about pleasing God and understanding that lives are at stake and that important things are hanging in the balance. And he said, you're a soldier. Don't, ex don't think something's weird because someone's shooting at you. And don't think that you can be a really good soldier while you're also involved heavily in all sorts of other things. It just doesn't matter. You need as few distractions as you can possibly have if you're going to really live your life to please God. Some things are just going to have to be laid on the wayside. This is going to be hard work. This is going to be painful at times. And then he switches to another metaphor and compares it to someone competing in the, in the Olympics. He says, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The word for crown there was the wreath that they would put on someone when they would, when they would win um, in an Olympic event. And Paul said, you know, an athlete has to learn to play by the rules. And if they don't, they're not going to be crowned. And the idea, again, is the emphasis on this is hard. There are no shortcuts to being who God wants you to be. You can't cheat your way into being effective for God. You can't cheat your way into knowing him. You cannot take shortcuts. This isn't something that you can dabble in. Oh, we've seen, of course, throughout history, it's always been the case that athletes try to get an edge by cheating. But we've seen it in, in horrible examples, you know, fairly recently, where now a lot of the records that are in the books, 
are going to have to have an asterisk next to them because, you know, what does it mean if you hit more home runs than someone else, but you were taking illegal drugs in order to enhance your capacity to be able to do that? And it's sad, it's really sad, that guys who were really talented and worked really hard still have that blotch on them and in some cases will perhaps never even be in the Hall of Fame when they should have easily been in the Hall of Fame even without steroids, but because they broke the rules, they become, in some sense, disqualified. And it's sad when that happens. Usually these are people who are very dedicated, but they're looking for a little something extra. And in the same way, when it comes to serving God, we have to do God's work in His way. There are some people who for years and years will spend their lives dedicated to God and wanting to serve God. And then one poor decision, one slip up, one compromise, and all of a sudden everything that has been done so far doesn't matter and they're always going to be known as the person who did that, the person who tried to cheat, who took a shortcut. And Paul is saying, with an athlete, you can easily lose your reward if you allow your life to become distracted by other temptations or you decide to do God's work in your way. Boy, a whole lot of people who have a, a, a real heart for ministry will never be used in the way that they could be simply because they're cheating in one way or another. They're trying to take shortcuts. And Paul says, learn from the athletes. If, you, if, if the grace of God is worth living for and sharing with others, learn from the discipline and the hard work that athletes put in. They, they work so stridently in order to become the best that they can be legitimately. And in the same way, why should we expect that being who God wants us to be won't be difficult, won't involve sacrifice, won't involve discipline? Of course it does. It's so worth it, though. And to come short because of your flesh or to come short because of not just wanting to get too into it, too dedicated, can give you regrets for the rest of your life. And so Paul says, living this life isn't easy. Learn from the soldier. Learn from the top athlete. And then he says in verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. And the emphasis here is still on hardworking. It's not so much on, well, he has to eat his crops first. Um, although there's probably a little something there. You'd, I don't trust a farmer who wouldn't eat his own crops first. I don't Trust a cook who says, here, you taste this, I hate this stuff. Um, but really the idea is, again, using the imagery of the farmer and saying, it takes hard work. It doesn't happen overnight. And in order to be the kind of farmer who has first fruits, who has a good crop, you have to be the kind of farmer who puts in the work. And I never said it wouldn't be work. He says, it, Timothy, if you want to be used by God... It's going to take work, just like farming would, just like athletics will, just like being a soldier would. And then he just says, consider what I say. Think about this. 
And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. And so I would commit that to you as well, not to inundate you with all kinds of burdens, but I'd suggest that when you have a little time to yourself, think about what it takes to be a soldier, to be an athlete, to be a farmer, and then just consider what is it in my life that might require some of those same things that, that would then enhance my ability, capacity to share the grace of God and to be used by God. This is definitely worth our consideration. Many of us will miss lots of opportunities because we're just not willing to even consider this seriously. And so, good stuff. And now he says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David. Jesus Christ, by calling him Jesus the Messiah, he's emphasizing his deity and the accomplishment of his work. And then calling him the seed of David is acknowledging that he was completely a human as well. He said, he was raised from the dead according to my gospel. I like that he calls it my gospel. He was so in love with this message that he personalized it and said, it's my gospel. And he said, remember, Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, this is real. This is something that's worth devoting your life to. The very Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of David, came and became a man, was a human, and Look at what he did. And he was raised from the dead according to my gospel. That's a part of the gospel. How could you not want to share that? How could you, how could you even think that, I don't know if I want to devote my life to that. He says, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer. The word there for trouble is a word for evil. It's a little bit of a play on words. He says, I suffer evil as if I'm an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Paul said, I'm putting my life where my mouth is. I'm in trouble right now. I am in, in difficulty because I really believe this message. And I think it's well worth it. And while I am in chains, the gospel is not chained. The message can go forth even from my chains. He said, if you think I'm foolish, okay, make your own life decisions. But if you think that what I'm doing is worthwhile, understand this is how much I believe in the importance of the gospel. For most of us, to share the gospel is probably not going to get us locked up in chains. It's probably not going to... Somebody may make fun of us. People may ignore us. It, it may mean that, that we can't be as successful in the world as we might be if we made up our own rules or went by the rules that other people have made up. There are sacrifices that will be made. But anything that we suffer is generally a drop in the bucket compared to what Paul was suffering, and he knew that. Timothy would never suffer as much as Paul did. So he says, look at me. Understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. 
it's because it's totally worth it. And if it's worth it to me, it's certainly worth it to you for whatever it costs you. Therefore, I endure all things, whatever happens, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, I put up with all this because of those who are chosen, because of those that God has singled out for himself. And he said, I want them to get saved. Paul suffered everything in every case, partly because he didn't know who God was going to reach and who he wouldn't reach. And we don't either. And if, if I share the gospel with someone, it isn't necessarily just for them. Because I don't know how they're going to respond. And God has surprised me so many times when someone who I thought would not respond ended up responding in a powerful way. Other times I'm disappointed that someone who I think is responding falls away and no longer is responding. But the whole thing is, what we need to do is love them all, share the gospel with them all, and let God sort it out in the end. We aren't, you can't win them all. As one of my professors once told me, and he shared from me where one of the Old Testament prophets was, was called to minister, and God told him, you're gonna minister and a big tree is going to grow up. I think it was Ezekiel. And he said, after it's all said and done, the only thing that's going to be left is a little stump. And my teacher told me, Dr. Feinberg said, David, you're not ministering for the tree. You're ministering for the stump. And so don't get focused on making sure that you never lose a leaf. It's up to God to ultimately bring about that lasting fruit. And you'll understand that the stump of people who are left, if you, if you share with a thousand people and only one of them gets saved, would you consider yourself a failure? Well, I wouldn't. Because <laughs> if I can make a difference for one person, then my life has been worth living. Kind of like the story about the guy who was walking along the beach and a whole lot of this sometimes happens at high tide. A lot of starfish were being washed into the sand. And if a starfish gets washed up on the sand, they generally dry up and die. And the little boy was walking along by the coast, and he was just getting starfish. There were thousands of them, and he was tossing them back out into the water to save their lives. And no sooner would he throw it out than often it would get washed back up onto the shore. And a man came up to him and said, Little boy, why are you doing what you're doing? He said, well, I'm trying to save starfish. And he said, but don't you realize that you can't get them all and most of them that you save are still going to get washed up on the sand and, and they're going to die anyway? He said, what possible difference do you think you can make with all these starfish? And the little boy said, I don't know, but I think it makes a difference to this one. And he throws it in. And that's, that's the idea. Hey, I don't know who ultimately is going to respond to a message, but my percentages are much better if I share that message whenever I have a chance to. And if I show love toward everyone 
who comes across my path, everyone's not going to respond. But if someone does, even if everyone else is taking advantage of me, if someone does, it's worth it. That's why I don't worry too much about, you know, there are people who are just obsessed with if you see someone who's homeless and should you help them or shouldn't you, you know, some of them are going to, if you help them out, they're going to, you know, take their, the money you give them and go buy alcohol with it or go buy drugs with it. And, you know, it's true. And even if you buy them food, they can take the food back and say it didn't taste good and get their money back and go buy drugs. But, you know, um, they're going to do drugs anyway. So I really don't think your few dollars is going to put them over the top. But one that you help in the name of Jesus, it might make a difference. And it would be so worth it. And I'll take chances on a whole lot of people if God leads me to. I don't give money to every bum that I see out there panhandling. Um, but if, and I mean bum in the nicest sense of the word. <laughs> but if God shows me, and he sometimes does, to help someone, I'm not worried about whether it works or not. I'm going to, in the name of Jesus, bless them. And I'll let God worry about it. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I'm suffering, and a lot of people aren't worth it, but there are a few that will be. And those are the ones that I'm worried about. Those are the ones that I'm willing to suffer for. So I endure all things for the sake of the chosen few, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then he says, this is a faithful saying. And here, verses 11, 12, and 13, most scholars believe that this was probably a hymn that they sang in the early church. It's laid out, typical of Hebrew poetry, and so probably this was a song that they sang. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So these little contrasts, first of all, if we died with him, if we've been crucified with Christ, then of course we're also going to live with him. If I can trust him about death, I can trust him for resurrection. And then if we endure Again, go through whatever it is that it takes and hang in there, then we're going to reign with him. We're going to be blessed by having a special place in his kingdom. If we deny him, the NIV renders this word um, if we disown him. And that's probably um, a pretty good, it's a decent, at least, interpretation. The word there literally means if we are saying no about him. But the idea isn't just denying him in terms of, you know, I say something against him or I avoid him or something like that. It's making a conscious decision to, to not agree with him and to not believe in him, really. And if we do that, he will disown us. Um, that's, a, that's a disturbing promise there. Um, I love trusting in the security that I have in Jesus Christ. 
And I do believe that if somebody is legitimately saved, they would never fall away from that salvation because you'd understand what it's about and you'd never want to. But I, I have enough passages of Scripture that give me problems with just saying absolutely that it is impossible for you to leave your salvation. There are a whole lot of warnings in Scripture, and I wouldn't, I'll tell you something, that warning is not one that I would ever want to water down or talk someone out of. I had someone who I was corresponding with an email recently um, about eternal security, and he was really gung-ho on eternal security, and he said, I just feel so bad that there are people out there who are living with a fear that maybe they aren't saved when really they're totally secure. And I said to him, yeah, I agree, that is a drag, but what's worse, that or somebody out there who somebody has assured them that they really are saved and don't have anything to worry about, and then they go to hell and go, what? I thought I was eternally secure. The guy answered back to me, he goes, yeah, I never thought about it that way before. I guess that is a concern. So I would never want to make anyone feel like, don't worry about whether you're saved or not. To me, I would say, I don't care what you call it, whether you are saved and lost or whether you were never saved in the first place, play those semantical games all you want. To me, everyone ought to make sure that they are of the household of faith, as the scripture says. And, and because of it, the truth is, could I disown him? Seems like it's a possibility because if so, he says he'll disown me also. I'm never going to do that. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. But apparently Paul felt like if we do this, then this is how he responds. And, and I don't think we should take a warning like this lightly. If we are faithless, though, he remains faithful and he can't disown himself. And I am thankful that when I am faithless, he's still faithful. Oh, if I walk away from him, I don't have anything to hang on to. But as long as I'm like the, the dad who said, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. As long as in the depths of my heart, I really want to believe in him, then I can depend on his faithfulness to keep me, to hold on to me, and I absolutely believe that salvation is him hanging on to me, not me hanging on to him. And this is a beautiful promise. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's not going to deny himself. He can't possibly change who he is. So a great little hymn here about how important it is that we know where we stand with God, that we understand the nature of the gospel. He says in verse 14, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. So much fighting over words. So many people that are having discussions that turn into arguments, that turn into books, that turn into books, that respond to books, that, you know, all of this stuff haggling over things that are so inferior to the gospel. 
So much of our talk, and he's going to go on and talk about it a little bit later, but don't strive over words that have no profit and that ruin the hearers. The idea is you have a simple truth that can change people's lives for eternity. You don't have a whole lot of things more important than that to fight with people about. And then he goes on and says, be diligent. Talking to Timothy as a pastor, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Work hard. The, the word there for diligent literally is to be fast, to be quick. Get on this, Timothy. Make it your drive. Make it your desire to present yourself approved to God, to live your life in a way that pleases Him. A worker who does not need to be ashamed Rightly dividing the word of truth. The word there for rightly dividing the word of truth is a word that is two words put together, the word for straight and the word for cut. And so cutting straight the word of God. Now, you might understand that a little better if I tell you how this word was used in extra-biblical Greek. It was a word that they used often to refer to when you plow a field, that you set a straight line, a perpendicular line to the field, and that you cut straight, that you're not wandering all around. I don't know about you, but there have been a few times when I've laid tile, and it really didn't come out very well, because I saw, okay, I was a little off on the first row, but I'll make it up somewhere else with more grout. And small mistakes in tile work lead to bigger mistakes later. You're much better off making sure that you get it right the first time. I've had this happen with flooring, tile on a wall, and put all that work in, and it just, does, it just doesn't look like what it ought to look like. And tile costs just as much when you put it up crooked as it does when you put it up straight. And so in the same way, when you're plowing a field, Get your orientation and continue to shoot straight down there. And so what he's saying to Timothy is, when it comes, don't get caught up in a bunch of empty words. You teach the Word of God and teach it straight and teach it simple and make sure that it just lines up with what, what God says. And when you do that, God will be pleased. People might not be pleased. People often don't want you to shoot straight with them. They would rather have you tickle their ears. But God will be pleased if you will shoot straight. And so he's saying, Timothy, do this. Be quick about it. This is, be on top of this. Present yourself, approve to God. A worker doesn't need to be ashamed. Shooting straight with the word of truth. But in contrast, Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. He goes, stay off the fringes. Stay off the things that don't have any real practical value toward godliness. Don't get yourself enamored by all of the empty talk and all of the basic babbling that is sometimes done in the name of teaching the Word of God. Because he said a lot of people get sidetracked from that. And he said their message, oh, shun profane and idle babbling, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, 
who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. These two guys, Hymenius was mentioned over in 1 Timothy, Philetus never mentioned. Apparently they were people that, that um, you know, Timothy knew about who had gotten off on their message. It started out okay, but they just began to get um, interested in side issues, in nitpicking sorts of things, in theological debate, in um, trying to come up with totally new ideas that no one else has ever seen, and just caught up in kind of weirdness. And all that stuff is really attractive. It's a danger for anyone who's teaching the Word, and it's a danger for anyone who's a real student of the Word. Because it can get boring. It's hard work to just really learn the Word of God. But man, if somebody comes up with some kooky twist on something, wow, that gets your attention. That's interesting. So it's a lot more fun to speculate on you know, something with UFOs and something with political intrigue involved and things that most people don't know about and secret messages within the text and, you know, counting every 12th letter and then every 13th and every 14th and it makes a word and there it is, Barack Hussein Obama. Woo, praise God. And it's like, he's going, Here, here's two guys who are an example they got off on this kind of stuff, and the next thing you know, they decided that the resurrection wasn't really the resurrection, that it's not really coming. Now, we don't know exactly what their teaching was. Perhaps they were saying that there is no physical resurrection, that it's just a spiritual resurrection, and it happens when you got saved. Perhaps, perhaps they were more preterists who were saying none of the prophecies are actually about the future. They're only about the past. Um, at any rate, these guys got into creatively interpreting the scriptures in a way that made people think, wow, you guys are really special, you guys are really smart. And the result of it was some people strayed concerning the truth. Some people were overthrown in their faith. Strain concerning the truth is that strain is something that happened gradually. It's dabbling around the edges, always wanting to be on the edge. Eventually, if you're walking on the edge, you're going to fall off the edge. And people who are fascinated by the edge are going to be drawn to it. And it's just not a healthy thing to do when it comes to the gospel. And I know plenty of people who have left off the simple truth of the gospel because they would rather come up with something sexier than that, something more exciting than that, something that's you know more um, intriguing than that. Paul says to Timothy, you cut it straight. Play it straight. Don't do that. You've seen what happens when guys are out there dabbling around in things. He goes, don't go that way. Don't follow that temptation. Some people's faith will be overthrown when you do that. And it's sad when there are people who lose their faith because they get caught up in all the drama of something that's really a non-essential that somebody decides is the most important thing ever. 
And so often we draw lines theologically so narrow that we would say that, you know, if, you know, this, if, if I'm wrong about this, then the whole Bible's wrong. For instance, there are people who, well-meaning, good people, who, who teach that if the earth is more than 10,000 years old, then the Bible lies and you can't believe the gospel. Christianity is done for if the earth is more than 10,000 years old. Now, when I read the Genesis account, it looks to me, uh, I can certainly see a young earth. I can see how that would fit in. I can certainly believe that God's capable of speaking the earth into existence in six days. I have no problem with that. However, the scriptures don't say explicitly, here's when matter was created. Here's when the universe originated. Here's exactly how long it's been. And so as a result, I can have my view. But here's what happens. Somebody starts studying geology, and they see all the evidence that the earth is much older than that. And now they've been told that there is no option here. The Bible didn't tell them that. People told them that. And I know people who have left the faith. Or they go to college and they study astronomy. And they find out that there are stars out there that haven't existed for millions of years. We're only seeing the beam of light from that star. The star burned out way more than 10,000 years ago. And they look at that and they go, oh, shoot. I guess the Bible's a lie. I guess the gospel's not true. See, we should never hang our interpretation out there as if me being right affects the credibility of the scriptures. I will go to my grave or to the rapture, believing that everything in this book is true. I will never question anything that God says. But I don't necessarily interpret it all correctly. And I don't want anyone thinking that the Bible as I interpret it, if it's wrong, then we're sunk. Um, and in fact, I resent people in the name of Jesus who spend a whole bunch of time messing around with ideas that are not central to having people escape hell and get to heaven. And I think it's just foolish and dangerous to allow your life to major on things that are minors. God gives us a lot of great information in the scriptures, and every bit of it has value to us, but it all connects with the gospel. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, Stay off the fringes. That's a dangerous place to be. Stick with the straight gospel, the grace of God, the truth of his word. And you do that, and you will not become distracted. You'll not then run the risk of leading someone else astray. I mean, I because I love studying the things of the Lord, I read all kinds of books that I wouldn't necessarily recommend to others. Because I like seeing what's out there. I'm interested in that. Um, it's important for me to understand the gospel in perspective and in light of what it is that people believe. But I try to be really careful that I would never lead someone else astray and just say, oh yeah, you know that Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, he's really smart, you ought to read his stuff. 
No, I would say, hey, read it with this caveat. And if you're really interested in it, then let me interact with you on it and see, get a perspective or read a good Christian book from somebody who's really smart, who has responded to some of these objections. But the danger is that somehow we'll lead somebody out into the wilderness and leave them there. It's all about the gospel. And when it finally comes down to it, so many of the things that people argue about that are so empty. When we have been in heaven for a billion years, it's not going to matter how old the universe was. It's not going to matter how the whole thing of God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility, how that pans out. Could you lose your salvation? Not going to matter. When the rapture came, not going to matter. Um, whether or not Christians ought to drink alcohol or whether they should dance or whether you know, if you use a bad word, you're not a Christian or whether you... None of that stuff's going to matter. And so it's not that it doesn't have any value at all. It's that none of it dare take the place of what we are here for, and that is the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. So are you with me on that? Does that make sense? I think that's what he's trying to say. Nevertheless, verse 19, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. This is really simple. God knows those who are his. If you're his, quit doing stupid things that are messing up your life. Just it's as simple as that. I don't argue about what is iniquity. I'm not going to hear you defending yourself on why you're doing what you're doing or, you know, is this a is this a sin or is it a disease? Doesn't matter. I I heard the other day um I think it was Jay Leno was saying that they were arguing over whether obesity should be defined, the government's arguing, that maybe obesity should be defined as a disease instead of a condition because then it sets a lot of medical money available to treat obesity and everything. And so, so should obesity be considered a disease or not? And Jay Leno said, you know, that'd be nice because then when my wife says, do these pants make me look fat? I could say, hey, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know why it reminded me of that. But, <laughs> um, but the Lord knows those who are his. And if you name the name of Christ, that's what it's all about. If you believe in Jesus, then do what he says. Obey him. That's, in a nutshell, all he asks. And I like that. But, he says, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. He goes, in any kind of house there are valuable dishes and then there's paper plates. But he says, in a, in a, in a great house you have those, but, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be a vessel for honor sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. He said, if you, if you stop living in sin, if you stop doing things that you know are wrong, if you just do things God's way and follow him simply, then that's going to make you more valuable. If you want to be valuable, 
if you want to be a, a, a valuable piece of, of pottery, then quit acting like a paper plate or a roll of toilet paper. Treat yourself the way God thinks about you. Respect yourself the way God respects you. Expect from yourself what he expects. Elevate your, your idea of who you ought to be, and you will become more valuable. And your value will make you more effective in serving him and doing what he's calling you to do. And so I like that. It's a real simple explanation with the metaphor of dishes to say, hey, if you want to move up in the things of the Lord, then quit doing the things that pull you down. Simple as that. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, he'll be a vessel for honor. And then he says, and also flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. There are some youthful lusts, and some of them you don't ever outgrow. You don't sit and fight them. You don't just sit and pray about them. You don't like evaluate them and try to study them and learn about them. You don't go, well, I'm having a problem with my flesh, so I need to go get a book on it. He says, flee, get away. Stay away from the stuff that messes you up. Avoid those Areas of temptation where you have a weakness. Flee youthful lusts. In another place, Paul says, flee fornication and in a more specific area. But here he's just saying, you know what? Don't be afraid to run from situations that will get you in trouble. Don't be afraid to move in the other direction. If you've been trying to eat better, don't go when you see the hot sign on at Krispy Kreme. Don't just go in there to watch the donuts going through the grease and being bathed with the sugar. Man, I haven't been there in a long time. I'm, I'm missing it even as I speak. But that's not the place to go to say, God, help me not to eat a donut. You know, if they're hot, they'll give you one freebie like a drug dealer when you go there. So for me, it means literally that if I'm anywhere near Krispy Kreme, I don't drive past it. There are times I've gone a mile out of my way when I'm feeling particularly vulnerable. And there are other sins of our flesh that we need to learn to plan ahead of time so they don't get ourselves in a position like that. Run. Sometimes running is the smartest thing that you can do. The best way to win sometimes is to run away. If you have a way of escape, get out of there. And so he says, but chase after. Here's what you should be aggressive about. Righteousness, faith, love, peace. With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What are you doing right now to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace? And to call on the Lord with those of a pure heart? What in your life is designed to make that happen? Because that's a, that's a commandment, an important commandment for us to understand. It's not just about what we run away from, but it's what we run toward. And I want every opportunity to have these qualities become a part of my life. It's one reason why I want to spend time with people who are like-minded. It's why fellowship is so important. 
because we are not just to kind of do this, we are to pursue it, we're to chase it. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Kind of going back to his original thought, but elaborating on it. Knowing that they generate strife. Now how do you know it's a foolish and ignorant dispute? Well, if it generates strife, it's foolish. And then we'll see a little bit more here in just a minute. He says, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So if you're going to be a servant of God, you cannot be argumentative. You can't. It doesn't work. You can't bowl people over. You can't be overbearing. You can't insist on your way. If you are a quarrelsome person, you cannot serve God and do that. And that's a real challenge to many of us, and and some of us really need to learn this, but he says, servant of the Lord can't do this, but on the other hand, the servant of the Lord has to learn to be gentle to all, not just people who agree with you, able to teach, able to communicate in a way that puts the point across, patient and humble so that you can correct people who are in opposition. Now, opposition concerning what? The context makes it clear. The only time when we are correcting people is when their repentance is going to help them to know the truth so that they'll escape the snare of the devil. So we're not talking about every time you see somebody who has a different view than you, or every time you know someone who disagrees with you that you are to stress your point of view and make sure that you persuade people of that. It's not talking about that. You winning people over to your opinion is never worth the risk of hurting someone and quarreling and disqualifying yourself as a servant of God. We are talking life and death, gospel, truth. We are to be, if we are to contend with someone, it has to be gently and with wisdom, and it better be about something that's life and death. It better be for battling for someone's soul. It's not just to win an argument. You want to do that, you can do that, but you can't do that and be a servant of the Lord. Because you'll never... Notice how he throws in there that they need to be um, apt to teach, able to teach, and patient. (laughs) If you're not gentle, you can't really teach. If you're not gentle, you can't really represent the gospel well um, the only way to really communicate in order to change people's lives is by doing it gently, by doing it humbly, by doing it patiently. These are the things that comprise good teaching. And if you're doing that well, it's not going to be a fight. It's not going to be a battle. You're not going to be shouting down people unless in those rare instances where it gets passionate because someone's very soul is at stake. And then you are still to be gentle and patient and humble and all of these things. 
It's the only way to confront someone when there is a difference. If you can't do it that way, you can't do it at all. You cannot be a servant of God and be a bully. You can't be a servant of God and force your way. It just doesn't work. never does. And, and this is a good reminder for us in our everyday lives that when we feel the temperature rising, when we feel that there's a discussion that's becoming passionate, is this about life and death? Am I really trying to save this person from what? And if you're not trying to save them from dire danger, it's not worth damaging a relationship and misrepresenting Jesus Christ so that you can win. It's just not worth it. And Paul's just letting Timothy know a young guy would be prone to lock horns. He goes, no, get rid of that. The gospel is too important for you to run the risk of chasing someone away from the gospel so you can be right and win your argument, no matter what it's about. So good stuff, some great reminders here. It's especially obviously relevant to pastors. This is a pastoral epistle, and he's talking to a pastor. But I think that within all of these um, all of these things that Paul shares with Timothy, there are things that apply to every one of us. We're all bearers of the gospel. We're all those who have the opportunity to mean life or death, depending on how we deal with people. And, and I think this is just great advice for all of us. So let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word, for this passage that, that, boy, it pokes us and makes us uncomfortable in some places. But that's why it's there, and that's what we need. Help us to shoot straight with your word. Help us to stick with things that matter. Help us to avoid empty babbling and, and, and fringe doctrines that just lead people astray and cause them to topple off the cliff. Lord, help us to stick with what we know, to stick with you, to represent you well in a way that is humble and gentle, loving, patient, in a way that's fitting someone who has decided to live our life to please you. May you cause us, by your grace, to grow in grace so that we can grow in our effectiveness at representing you well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.